0: Welcome back to episode 11 of Against Japanism Podcast. Today we're joined by my friend and comrade Ken Kawashima, the author of The Proletarian Gamble, Korean Workers in Interwar Japan, from 2009. Recently, Ken published a translation of Theory of Crisis by Japanese Marxist economist Uno Kozo. Today, we're going to discuss how the lived experience of Korean migrant workers and the Marxist theory of capitalist crisis discussed in these two books respectively tell us about capitalism, imperialism, and the struggle of workers today. Especially of colonized workers, such as the Korean workers in interwar Japan and migrant workers from the global south working in imperialist countries today. We begin the interview by discussing Uno's methodology in analyzing capitalism called Kaido or Three Steps Theory. The first step involves the purification of Marx's theory of capital and abstracting from the historical and empirical details to elucidate its logic and the fundamental principles of capitalist economy. The second step involves tracing the historical development of capitalism in stages, starting from mercantilism, liberalism, and onto imperialism, or monopoly capitalism, as theorized by Lenin in his Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. The third and final step is a conjunctural analysis of capitalism in the present, as experienced in various countries, societies, and communities. Uno insisted on the separation of these three levels, but argued that any analysis of capitalism that is missing any one of these steps is incomplete. For instance, we cannot directly apply the fundamental principles of the first step to our present conjuncture without being mediated by the historical analysis of imperialism. Conversely, We can't simply critique imperialism without taking into consideration the fundamental principles of capitalism. We then discuss how this methodology can help us understand capitalist crisis as explained in Uno's rereading of Marx's Capital and why capitalism periodically goes into crisis as it did during the 2007 and 2008 financial crisis and is currently going through as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the climate change, an ecological crisis that is increasingly putting capitalism's legitimacy into question. Through the analysis of fundamental principles, the first step, Uno argued that the crisis under capitalism is not an accident, but inevitable and necessarily built into its cyclical movement through three phases. Prosperity, crisis, and depression. Unlike other Marxist theories of crisis, which identified its cause in the sphere of production, such as the tendency of the rate of profit to fall, or in the sphere of circulation, such as the crisis of overproduction or underconsumption of commodities, Uno argues that crisis originates in the intersection of production and circulation, the commodification of labor power. Since labor power is the only commodity that can produce value, as much as the workers are reliant on wage for their subsistence, capitalism is equally reliant on the continuous commodification of their labor power for its survival. However, capitalism's drive towards infinite growth and expansion meets its own barrier, as the supply of labor power of human beings cannot be increased at will to meet the demands of expanding production. As a result, capitalist production comes to a standstill. Uno therefore calls the commodification of labor power the fundamental contradiction of capitalism, as it is simultaneously the condition of its existence, as well as its weakest link or Achilles' heel. Since capitalism is unable to readily produce human beings as things and other means of production, it creates what Marx called relative surplus populations, or the reserve army of labor, a mass of unemployed workers considered surplus or excessive in relation to capitalist production whom it can bring back into production once the cycle re-enters the phase of prosperity and capitalism supposedly resumes its expansion, in theory. However, Uno recognized that while there is the discernible repetition of crisis that indicates the inevitability of crisis under capitalism tied to the commodification of labor power, The ways in which the crisis happens changed over time, with the development of capitalism from the liberal free market capitalism in Marx's time to the stage of imperialism, which we are in today. This is where historical analysis becomes useful in the Marxist theory of crisis. Under imperialism, Capitalism no longer follows the clearly demarcated phases of prosperity, crisis, and depression, but stagnates in the chronic state of depression and relies on the pool of chronically unemployed surplus populations, often located in the margins of the capitalist world system in the colonized and semi-colonized countries. In the second half of this interview, We apply Uno's theory of crisis to the historical stage of capitalist imperialism and the concrete struggle of Korean migrant workers in the interwar period, who jumped out of the flying pan of agrarian poverty in the Korean countryside into the fire of the post-World War I industrial recession and the Great Depression. We discuss the reason behind the book's title, Proletarian Gamble, and why the definition of the proletariat should be expanded beyond the already employed factory workers to include the unemployed and precariously employed workers, such as the Korean workers in Interwo Japan, many of whom worked in the day labor market. For them, as colonized workers doubly oppressed by the precarious labor market and racist discrimination from their Japanese bosses, Landlords and the state. Selling their labor power was a risky gamble. Further, various apparatuses of the Japanese state worked to segment the labor market along ethnic lines by dividing Japanese workers from Korean workers, as well as to facilitate class differentiation within the Korean community by creating a puppet organization subservient to Japanese imperialism. We also discuss how the struggle of Korean migrants as workers was intertwined with their struggle as tenants as the broader working-class housing insecurity during the post-war recession in the 1920s, as well as the racist discrimination from Japanese landlords made many Korean workers homeless. Thus, for Korean workers, class struggle took place not only in the place of production, if they were lucky in finding work, but also in their living space as the place of social reproduction. We then discuss how the rise in unemployment during the post-war recession and the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 in neighboring Russia, as well as the Korean independence movement in 1919, led to the reorganization of policing in the Japanese Empire. In order to suppress the growing national liberation movement in Korea and the workers' unrest in Japan, the Japanese state created a welfare organization called Soaikai, ostensibly created to promote Korean-Japanese harmony and reconciliation. While Soaikai was led by Koreans, including Pak Chung-gun, who later became the first Korean to be elected into the Japanese parliament, it acted as a comprador counter-insurgency organization to facilitate the super-exploitation of Korean workers and undermine revolutionary organizing among the Korean workers. We conclude our interview by discussing how the struggle of Korean workers continued during and after World War II, and the struggle of migrants in Japan today, and what this history tells us about capitalism and the necessity of communism. If you like what you hear in this episode and other episodes, please support my work by subscribing to my Patreon and or making one-time donations to my GoGet funding page. You can find the links to both in the show notes. Without further ado, here is an Against Japanism interview with Ken Kawashima. Enjoy.
1: Okay, well, hello. Um, Thank you for inviting me to your podcast, uh, Kota. And uh, my name is Ken Kawashima. Um, I teach at the University of Toronto. I'm a historian. Um, I'm an author of uh, a book called The Proletarian Gamble, Korean Workers in Interwar Japan. I recently translated uh, Uno Kozo's Theory of Crisis into English. And I was born in the United States uh, to a Japanese and Korean mother and father and um, moved to Toronto uh, about 20 years ago. So I've been in Canada and in Toronto for the last 20 years and uh, trying to keep on going. I'm also a musician. I play blues music and they call me Sugar Brown. So that's me.
0: Okay. Thank you so much, Ken, for coming on the show. So. Uno Kozo developed a distinct methodology for analyzing capitalism called Sandankairon, which means three-step theory or three-stage theory. Uh, For listeners who are not familiar with Uno's work, can you explain what this methodology is and how it can help us critically
1: analyze capitalism? Yes. Um, Well, Uno developed this method, uh, which is really a method for... We could say political economy or marxist economics um, but also a methodology for the social sciences in general and it has to do with how to analyze capitalism and the essence of it which is capital and it's a method that um, develops out of um, a a radical reinterpretation of marx's book das kapital and what he's doing in this method is he creates three levels for basically for all students to uh, be able to understand the inner contradictions of capitalism um, but also to understand its its historical uh, stages of development and then finally to learn how to write about our present situation the present conjuncture which is the third step. So the first level is we learn the the basic logic of capital based on Marx's book Das Kapital, and um, one thing. So that that's the first basic level, and then on the second level we learn about capitalism's not just its inner logic, which is abstract and um, um, and and purely theoretical, but now we look at like the history of capitalism, like almost as if it's a living organism so that in its first early stages, when it's a little baby, we can detect a very clear stage and we can then detect another stage. um, Basically after the 1820s, when capitalism really establishes itself, its own social foundations in the social reproduction process. And this corresponds to the liberal stage. And then what, Uno showed following Lenin was that Marx was able to talk about this logic of capital based on the history of capitalism in England between the 1820s and 1860s. But of course, Marx died in the 1880s and could not see the future of capitalism after that liberal stage. Lenin discovered there's another stage called imperialism. And Uno also adopted this and said, now we can have uh, clearly, the analysis of the history of capitalist stages, the most contemporary would be imperialism. Then before that would be liberalism. And it's that period that Marx was able to abstract from that historical period and give us this abstract logic of capital in his book, Capital Das Kapital. But then Uno said we have to then finish the stage theory by adding and uh, recognizing the earliest stage, which is mercantilism. So he says, Uno says, the first level is we got the abstract logic of capital. We we can understand that. And then we have the, the more historical analysis of stages of capitalist development, which are three stages, mercantilism, liberalism, imperialism. And what's important about this Part of the theory is that these stages represent stages that every country that begins capitalism will will have to pass through. We don't know how long it will st- stay in each period or each stage, but it cannot go from zero to you know 100 overnight. It has to go through all of these stages. And um, of course, if it's a late developing country, for example, Japan in 1868, of course, they're beginning their capitalist future right when world historically capitalism is already changing into the stage of imperialism in the 1870s. So we have this kind of uneven development, this kind of non-synchronized development. Um, But what Uno's point is, is that even though, say, Japan has to begin from zero in 1868, it has to catch up with the advanced capitalist countries that are already entering the last stage of capitalism, Japan cannot go from zero to the stage of imperialism right away. They have to go through these stages and they will just try to make it as quickly as possible through those stages. And um, that will lead to all kinds of uh, weird uh, social symptoms and uh, different forms of crisis actually. And these things, in other words, these stages can then help us understand how the logic of capital historically becomes distorted concretely in a given country at a given time. And so, but we can now have a better appreciation for how to uh, analyze the present situation, knowing the logic and knowing the stages. So then we can write what Uno called the Genjo Bunseki, or the analysis of the present conjuncture, which is really a way to say, how do we write history? You know, we cannot write history of our present, which is dominated by capitalism and imperialism. We cannot write this history simply knowing the logic of capital, in other words, Das Kapital, Marx's book, nor can we simply write the history from the second level or the stages of the stages um, and simply uh, give a kind of linear history of capitalism, uh, that is itself is also not enough to really write a true history of the present. We need to combine the logical analysis plus the historical stage theory analysis, and then we're better able to write a history of the present situation to especially take into account uh, problems of workers and the proletariat. And for Uno, the essence of that is the process of selling labor power as a commodity. Um, For him, that is the epicenter of his entire methodology that grounds the logic of capital, that then also becomes the um, the determining element to think of the stage of uh, the stage development of of capitalist history, um, and in the analysis of the present situation, it's also something we can analyze objectively, but also uh, now more and more also subjectively as well. So I would stop there.
0: Yeah, it's a really uh, interesting approach and also controversial. I was reading critique of this methodology by uh, John Bellamy Foster, saying that you know it's only imperialism, capitalism has evolved into imperialism, so there's no point in theoretically purifying capitalism. But I think, in my opinion, this has a sort of looking at politically, Mm. um, as someone on the anti-imperialist left, a lot of people who are politically anti-imperialist are not necessarily anti-capitalist. Like, Mm. they don't really have the analysis of classes. They only have, like, analysis of nations like oppressor and oppressed nations which is a legitimate question the national question it, it is a thing but you also need sort of materialist analysis of the economic system right that yeah. capitalism uh, is a global system so that's my uh impression but also though like a lot of anti-capitalists are also not anti imperialists Like they don't they have that, yeah. you know, they end up being like really like Eurocentric. <laughs> They're so focused on productive relations and such, but they don't really see the sort of like relations of unequal exchange. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. That's a
1: great observation that there's this double kind of problem, you know, anti-capitalists who aren't anti-imperialists and anti-imperialists who aren't necessarily, you know, uh, anti-capitalist, or at least have an, a deep analysis of capital. Um, and I think that's still one thing. I mean, it's it gets into so many profound methodological and, you know, uh, theoretical issues. Um, for example, the logic of capital, the way Marx writes it, uh, according to Uno, is it's very, it's a logic, which means, it is based on Marx's historical observations of England between the 1820s and 1860s but he doesn't write Das Kapital as a history book you know it's not a book of history that all the history is in the footnotes you know but the main text is a logic which is actually paradoxically you know kind of ahistorical it's deliberately meant to be a kind of Eternal system. But it's not because Uno thinks that capitalism is eternal. He knows, we all know it's historically based. But as a theoretical problem, when we think of the essence of capital, we have to treat it, Marx is saying, and Uno is saying, as if it is an eternal conundrum or an eternal problem that has yet to be overcome in practice. So theoretically, we have not overcome it. We have to treat it theoretically as if it's this eternal problem that we have to finally once and for all overcome. I think that's, you know, so some people would think, oh, the historical materialist approach is, you know, where's the history? It's got to be only historical analysis. No, that's not the case at all. Marx is showing the entire historical development of capitalism is based on this logic you see which which can be it's like the laws of thermodynamics say you know i mean these are just abstract pure laws and marx thought he was going to make the same thing pure laws of motion of of capital as if it was the laws of thermodynamics you know so uh, the idea being if you go into if you're a physics person you never go into a laboratory and conduct an experiment on nature if you don't know the laws of thermodynamics. Well, similarly, Marx is thinking we cannot analyze society without understanding the laws of capital as if these laws are eternal laws, even though we can uh, also show that historically they emerged at a very specific uh, moment, for example, in England after the 1819 crisis, or after the 1820 crisis and then into the 1840s with uh, you know full-on industrialization and so on that's when the logic really becomes clear uh, for Marx and then he abstracts from this into this pure logic. so people sometimes think well Marx is talking about the 8th, 19th century he's not only talking about the 19th century he's abstracting from the 19th century and to say that you know it's now no longer applicable, for our analysis of capital, because we've developed into the state into a higher stage uh, of imperialism and maybe even something beyond that, therefore, Marxist capital is irrelevant or it's uh, not applicable to our situation. That is an incorrect way to think about how to use that book Das Kapital. Okay, it's a book to be used as a theoretical guide you know, like a theoretical banister by which we can actually do better historical analysis um, by comparing this logic to what we can actually perceive in in reality. Um, And so I think, you know, these issues become very um, difficult, but, um, you know, basically Uno's idea is that the book and the logic of capital was abstracted from the 1820s to the 1860s period. After that, Lenin said that we are entering a new stage. It doesn't mean that Marx's abstract analysis is irrelevant. Rather, he shows that um, the capitalist mode of production remains intact, but now we have new dominant forms of capital. For example, finance capital and bank capital. Um, and, And then someone like Uno would say, uh, we would then have to also fill in a first stage before the liberal stage, which is about merchant capital, commercial capital, uh, MCM prime exchange, and all this stuff. So then now we have a very full, a fuller historical understanding as well as a deep um, logical understanding at the same time. And I think if if we can combine those two, then you're we're in a situation where we're necessarily anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist at the same time they have to be combined both
0: yeah like to sort of go back to earlier point about yeah people saying like marx's abstract analysis is irrelevant uh, but it's also like the other tendency sort of bend your stick onto the other (laughs) direction is to like see marx as the only source of explanation you know they just say oh like lol just read marx's capital and Mm. you know it's it's all in there right like it's um and sort of i think it leads to all sorts of uh uh yeah in collect analysis and you know <laughs> one example i can think of is uh you know david harvey saying imperialism is no longer a thing you know it's not yeah. it's just like uh, it's not you need learning you know you need to understand capitalism today uh, as the how functions globally the world is very much divided between core and periphery or global north, global south, imperialist nations, oppressed nations. Um, in general though, I think it's really refreshing seeing Lenin mentioned and analyzed in an academic bar. It's you know still still somewhat taboo to talk about Marxists after Marx like talk about Lenin or just even forget about Mao no one, no one wants to talk about oh. Mao. But uh, I think it's really cool to see in your work as well as the article you co-author with Kevin Walker about uh, Uno's work. Uh, you know, uh, sort of, yeah, bringing Lenin's analysis of imperialism to the theory of crisis, which mm. bring us to the next question. Uh, mm-hmm. You did allude to, you know, the sort of logic crisis mm. being part of the logic of capitalism. Uh, but there are various explanations of a crisis. There are various Marxist explanations of. Uh, crisis um how does uno explain crisis and how does it differ from other theories such as the the tendency of the rate of profit fall or mm. the crisis of underconsumption and or overproduction
1: yes well the first thing would be as i mentioned as we talked about and as you know uno's three level method the sundan First level is the analysis of the logic of capital. Um, Basically, it's Uno's purification of Marx's Capital, and the kind of culmination of this logic, quote unquote, would be Uno's theory of crisis. So, when he first wrote, for example, his his major book, Keizai Gendiron, the fundamental principles of political economy, um, in forty seven. 1947, 48, I think, 47, around that time, he hadn't yet incorporated the the abstract uh, theoretical analysis of capitalist crisis in that in the Gendidon. He, he wasn't ready to write it yet. So he needed another five years, basically, to keep working on the theory of crisis. And he basically wrote the theory of crisis as a way to also, which represented the kind of culmination of uh, Uno's analysis of Marx's Das Kapital. So it's really, I mean, as a translator of Uno's theory of crisis, basically it was so difficult, uh, not only linguistically at times, but theoretically um, because it was really a book about Marx's book Das Kapital especially sections and chapters that I wasn't always very familiar with, like, you know, in volume three and, uh, you know, chapter 15 or whatever, chapter 20 and so on. Uh, so it's really a book that helps us read Das Kapital. So um, I try to, you know, sell the book by saying, you know, you want to read uh, three volumes, 3,000 pages of Marx, or you, you can get pretty much a, a, a good idea of the, the whole book, by reading Uno's theory of crisis in 150 pages, you know, because it kind of summarizes capital from the perspective of what really Uno wants to show and demonstrate theoretically, especially, which is something he says, no one's ever done, but I'm going to do it because no one's really done it and they can't seem to do it, uh, which is to demonstrate theoretically uh, not only the accidentality uh, or contingency or or you know a randomness of capitalist crisis nor the possibility of crisis he's saying i'm i'm going to show that it's not only ac- it's never accidental it's never simply possible i'm going to actually show you that it's inevitable ni you know that was his big word uh That means the inevitability or the necessity of capitalist crisis. He's saying other theorists of crisis, uh, for example, Eugene uh, Varga or Lenin, you know, sometimes when he would write about crisis, Rosa Luxemburg, when she would sometimes write about crisis, um, he mentions some others, you know, Um. He's saying they're all amazing, great, but theoretically, they can only show that capitalist crisis is possible. But I want to show beyond any shred of a doubt that the phenomenon of capitalist crisis, which he also defines, but he as a phenomenon, he says, if it is based on the commodification of labor power, in other words, on class relations between working class and the capitalist class, mediated by this transaction and exchange of labor power as a commodity if that happens we can show that the phenomenon of capitalist crisis is totally inevitable that it, we cannot avoid it so we can so ideologically or in terms of our thinking what uno is saying is we may think that crisis let's say the uh, 2007 uh, two thousand and eight subprime mortgage crisis it happened on wall street and in the insurance companies and uh from certain individuals and all this you know bad uh, uh, bad loans and stuff like that and it seems totally accidental even in those situations uno's method would say actually it's inevitable and so what he shows is why it's inevitable how it's inevitable based on marx's logic of In Das Kapital. So that's the first point. He shows that crisis is never accidental. It is never only possible, but it is inevitable. And if we show that, then we can say that, for example, in terms of the class analysis, we can show that the capitalist class cannot manage the system that it itself has created. And therefore, they need to be basically kicked out and we need a revolution and uh, take over this mode of production and to eliminate not only capitalist crisis, but, you know, exploitation upon which it is based and so on and so forth. You know, so that's the idea to show that if it's inevitable, then we can show that it's as if this system is internally structurally operable precisely because periodically it goes into crisis. It needs these crises to reorganize its own contradictions periodically. And we should therefore never think that when there's a crisis, it's some aberration of the normal modus operandi of the capitalist mode of production. No, it's it's actually built into the system to periodically and inevitably lead to a crisis, and that's when he gets into. So then, what is the definition of crisis? We could say for for Uno, it's it's a moment where the entire um, chain of of value is frozen. For example, when profit rates are falling, and then there's a rise in interest rates. You know, so that the factories that are borrowing money from the banks. They they get into a, a conflict of interest, and then we see a conflict of falling rates of profit, rising interest rates, and then everything becomes suspended. People can't pay each other back. Uh, people can't get paid, um, and then this is kind of what is happening in the in the crisis. But what Uno shows is that this crisis is only one phase in the total accumulation process. And it's like a cycle of prosperity, which leads to, uh, which is based on a previous phase of economic depression. But then there's a transition from depression to prosperity. That's where we see labor power becoming commodified. We see uh, this shift from depression to prosperity. But Uno shows, and Marx shows, that at the highest point of economic prosperity where the machines and the factories, for example, are going 24-7. They're making a lot of money. Profits are very high. At the very peak of this, this is where we can get into a you know the penultimate moment to capitalist crisis. And then we'll see the problems of overproduction, where they cannot uh, uh, sell all the things that they've produced. That is part of the overproduction under consumption problem. We will start to see how uh, the rate of profit will fall when wages increase during the highest levels of prosperity that will start to slowly pull down the profit rates. But then when the capitalists cannot sell all the stuff that they've been producing, then they have this feeling that they've overproduced. um, And we have these collisions of falling profit rates, rising interest rates, everything gets frozen. And then the system goes into the crisis phase. Um, and in the crisis phase, typically we see uh, workers being fired, uh, that we see production contracting. Uh, we see um, tendencies, you know, towards a financial ruin. Um, and this lasts for a, a period of time. But then what UNO shows is that after the phase of crisis, there's also this inevitable phase of depression, or fkjol. So in fkjol, we really see the production of unemployed workers. They really start getting tossed out of jobs by the thousands. We see also the mode of production and the capitalists usually trying to uh, reorganize the technical means of production or the to reorganize what Marx called the organic composition of capital, for example, the fixed capital. So get all the old crap out of there and get new machinery in there or get the old programs out and put the new software, the new hardware and the new, uh, you know, all the new technical things. Do it during the phase of depression and during the phase of depression, you know, it's extremely competitive with your rivals and we see intense exploitation of existing workers. Uh, who are working usually with fewer workers, you know, because so many workers have been fired. So therefore, the individual workload gets intensified and we see everyone getting squeezed. And then Uno says, then this is then the the last phase of the process of accumulation. And we can show that the crisis uh, phase is the phase that kind of comes between prosperity and depression. So it's basically an accumulation cycle of uh, prosperity, depression, mediated by crisis constantly. So wherever you are in the cycle, you know where, where things are, you know, and we need to have this kind of normative way to think of the inevitability of crisis, because when we look at capitalism historically, we can see, yes, during the 1820s and 1860s, Definitely every 10 years there was a crisis. So it's pretty much clockwork, you know. But then the problem was after the 1870s, capitalist crisis does not run like clockwork anymore. And Marx and Engels, at the end of their lives, they were kind of confused. They're like, we're waiting for the decennial uh, crisis to appear again. Why isn't it here yet? And they couldn't realize that capitalism was actually entering this highest stage of imperialism where the economy and, its, and the phenomenon of crisis and the periodicity starts to change. You know, we get longer periods of depression, shorter periods of prosperity and really cataclysmic outbursts of, of crisis and usually then a very long depression. And that's what UNO and many Japanese Marxists also called uh, the manse teki fukyo, chronic depression. So these are some of the things, I mean, so, and the last part is how is it different? How is Uno's theory of crisis different from theories of the fallen rate of profit or the overproduction under consumption The simplest way to think of it is, is he doesn't want to say they're just wrong as in, you know, not useful. No, it's, it's totally important, you know. Um, but if we were to categorize the fallen rate of profit approach to theory of crisis, we could say that's. Based in production, right, and of course exploitation, uh, and of course the analysis of wages becomes so important to this. But it's in production, and then we could say, and therefore they argue that the fundamental cause of crisis is in production. Then the the other theory of crisis, you know, the overproduction underconsumption. This takes place in the process of accumulation, and basically in the exchange relation when a capitalist is trying to sell the commodities that they produced. So the Marxist tradition calls this the realization problem. How does the surplus value, which is in the commodity, if it's not sold, then the surplus value cannot be realized as profit. And then if we cannot be realized as profit, the capitalist cannot distribute that profit to everyone. So if they can't sell it, they're really screwed, basically. So That is now, so, but this is taking place in the sphere of circulation, we could say. So Uno's theory of crisis recognizes both these approaches to the theory of crisis, one really based in production and the class antagonism and the the struggles against exploitation on the one hand. As well as this other area of crisis where it's about the realization of surplus value. It's about selling commodities through exchange. And if there's no exchange and if they can't sell it to workers, there's going to be overproduction and underconsumption. But that's taking place in circulation. So what UNO wants to do is basically recognize that there's some bridge between the sphere of circulation and the sphere of production. And that bridge is called the commodification of labor power, or ka. So Uno is saying, of course, crisis has elements that are developed in production and um, the wor- where the worker workers as now as a class who work uh, cooperatively, for example, in a factory uh, or in an office or whatever, in production, That is an important locus of struggle. But Uno is also saying, but what is the fundamental condition for these workers even to be employed as a working class, you know, uh, being exploited? What is the basic condition of these workers being exploited, which causes crisis? He would say it is first, the workers sold their labor power to the capitalist as a commodity. This is the fundamental pivot or, a kind of threshold from the world of the market and circulation into the privacy of of the production process. So he wants to say the epicenter of capitalist crisis actually is the commodification of labor power, which doesn't happen simply in production nor simply in circulation only. It's kind of I would say kind of a bridge between them. So that's his unique perspective on the theory of crisis which is also his unique perspective on how to think of the logic quote unquote of, of Das Kapital.
0: Yeah. Thank you for explaining that. And I would say it's deceptively simple, that point about commodification of labor. Yeah. You jokingly say in the introduction that, you know, you say it like a mantra, right? Commodification of labor, commodification of labor. Labor it power. It makes sense. Um, I mean, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's a joke, but it does. It is quite a quite a simple point that the highlights the assumption uh, that capitalism makes, right? Like it is a system built towards infinite expansion and growth, right? Yeah, and it presumes that labor power as a commodity can be produced just like other commodities, like things
1: but it cannot be actually yeah yeah so that's really uno's basic i mean it's a very we could say formalist point abstract point um but it's really it's basically his way of thinking of what is the fundamental contradiction of the capitalist mode of production uh, which means where is this system the most fragile and vulnerable What is its Achilles heel? Okay. And he argues that, of course, this is a commodity economy, but it's not just a regular commodity economy. We're talking about not just products of labor like cups and computers and pencils and stuff. These are products of labor which become commodities. But that's just the old mercantile way of thinking of the economy. But what capitalism is, according to Marx and according to Uno, is it's only when human beings sell their capacity or ability to labor itself as a commodity that we can talk about the real historical origins of, of the capitalist mode of production. So it's it's and yet the the problem for capitalism is, is that it must buy your labor power which means it must be, if I'm the capitalist, I got to buy your labor power, which exists only in your body and in your mind. And I got to buy your labor power because once you sell it to me, I can use your labor power. However, and basically, you know, pretty much how, how I want to use your labor power and you'll agree to it if you sign the contract and so on, et cetera, et cetera. But I get to use your labor power and your labor power produces all this new value. For example, we make cups or something. You make tons of amazing cups for me, and you don't own those cups. I do, the capitalist. And also, you don't own your labor power while you're working because you sold it to me, and so I'm going to consume it like a commodity and squeeze all that value out of your labor power. But the problem for capital, Uno says, is that it must the contradictory position of capital is that it must consume your labor power, our labor power as a commodity, and yet it cannot produce us human beings as a commodity directly. It has to hope that we, you know, sell, voluntarily sell our labor power as a commodity. So Uno says this is the kind of contradictory space where capitalists where the capitalist mode of production theoretically has this very fragile weak link you know where it is a commodity system um and so on but it it turns to revolve around our labor power which it must consume as a commodity but it cannot produce it as a commodity this is a big contradiction this shows that capital has a weak point it's achilles heel which shows that we as owners of this of this thing Labor power have a lot of power, um, and we need to be more and more aware of that power, so that we can um, not simply um, not simply be unaware, not to you know to to become conscious of how our labor power is implicated in in this uh, huge uh, exploitative system.
0: Yeah, it does also point to to do yeah, the current crisis we live in right now this global pandemic you know in earlier on in 2020 you know 2020 when this just started it, it really showed that you know there's this deadly virus spreading and people getting sick and can't come to work The economy comes to a standstill um mm-hmm. i mean it was a temporary like it, workers were told to go back to work and work in very dangerous conditions you know there's some uh, really terrible outbreaks in some of the factories like meat packing factories in Alberta. Yeah. there's a lot of like a filipino migrant workers work um yeah so it is sort of really does expose the it did expose that it's a fundamental contradiction of capitalism we talked about uh, uno talked about um mm. and also that you know the crises do happen even from the, these external causes uh, seemingly external causes Like pandemic, or also like climate change, right? Like it's Uh um, the question of the land and ecology, uh, Uh which is like labor power presumed to be infinite, right? Like capitalism Uh assumes that the all these raw materials, Uh Uh products of nature, are always going to be available, but you know that is not Uh the case. We we're really paying the price and heading towards the barbarism right like the yeah, common ruling of content in classes uh, like engels and roxenberg yes. said mm-hmm. um but even even if capitalism worked right perfectly we you know i would say it still inevitably leads to a crisis
1: yeah i mean he would say i mean if capitalism continues to either commodify or nowadays we would say even financialize labor power I guess they would they would tend to argue, yeah, that it'll, it'll still be inevitable. Um, that's based on the system of private property that's based on, um, you know, the contract and exchange uh, and and so on. I mean, as long as those things and, and the mode of production still rests on on wage labor, Uno says, and, and, and also insofar as land is also commodified when originally it itself is not a commodity. If those things are still at the center of the economic system, Uno says, yeah, the crisis will be inevitable. And that capitalist crisis is actually a necessity for this system. And what I think Uno and Marx want to say is if we can show that, that this kind of terrible, violent um crisis which tears society apart and kills livelihoods and so on is inevitable um well then you know we really should uh, think of the necessity of 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 revolution to take power away from those who run it because they clearly cannot manage it you know that's the rough argument (laughs) i mean simple argument but I think it's important to, to, you know, I think that you mentioned Bellamy, uh, John Bellamy Foster, and you know, his important work on on ecology, and I've noticed that sometimes there's some weird tensions with Yeah, I guess with Uno, uh, they, 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 perhaps because Uno spends so little time in his major works talking about land, um, but I think there are elements of Uno's work on the agrarian question, No So Mondai, No monday, which are really quite important analyses of, uh, especially primitive accumulation and um, how land uh, becomes expropriated by the state and and commodified thereafter. Um, I think there are some other scholars like Nagahara Yutaka also who's who's onto this who who wants to also, I think, emphasize, you know, the analysis of land, um, which like labor power is this, one of these peculiar commodities, because it's not originally a commodity, uh, which produces all this value, um, but which is not originally a commodity. It must be consumed as a commodity, but it cannot be produced as a commodity. It's just gotta be found in nature, you know? And as you said, we think, yeah, uh, they they probably thought in the 19th century, this is an infinite resource, you know. Um, but no, it's actually finite, just like labor power is finite, you know, because it's about our human bodies and our relation to death, basically. Uh, we're all going to die anyway, but um, we are not immortal, you know. Um, and so these are questions, I think, also that for me, Uno's method really kind of brings to the foreground by rereading Marx's *Capital* on labor power—not just workers, not just labor, which is an activity, but labor power. *Rodo uh, ryoku*, you know, not just *rodo*, but *rodo ryoku*. And it's—it's it's also a capacity. It's this abstract potential that's in it, in all of us, and we all have different potentials. Um, but to really focus on how our potential is fundamentally bound to our bodies, our minds, uh, which are finite, you know, and the pandemic, of course, brings this out, you know, so much more. We, we you know, we are reminded every day of the finitude of, of our mortal bodies, which is the bearer of this prized special uh, thing called labor power. Um, and for me, Uno, Uno's books um, really introduced that concept to me. I mean, every Marxist, of course, they've read Das Kapital, they know, oh, of course, labor power, yeah, labor power. And yet, if you talk to them, how many still get confused labor and labor power, you know? So it's it's really a special category. Marx discovered it, invented it, and Uno really developed his entire method Around uh, this concept of labor power, so I would say that's one of the great contributions of Uno's work.
0: Yes, and Uno also talks about uh, relative surplus populations, right? Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain what this concept is and uh, why is it relative?
1: Yes. Thank you. It's a, it's another. It's it's a totally logical question after this the discussion of labor power. What Uno, one of his strengths, I think, of his theory of crisis, as well as his um, theory of the fundamental principles of capitalism uh, and his rereading of Marx's Capital, is he really um, accentuates the what Marx called the law of populations that is peculiar to the capitalist mode of production. And this is basically Marx's way to... Uh, theoretically overcome and critique uh, Thomas Malthus, who was this uh, conservative economist who wrote uh, a famous book on on the principle of populations, which uh, was basically anti-poverty, you know, a kind of anti-poor law uh, treatise on how to control populations. Marx wanted to smash uh, Malthus's theory of populations, and he wanted to show how Malthus, when he thinks of populations, he thinks of the population only as a biological population, which is you know understandable and so on. It's not crazy to think that. But Marx wants to say by Marx's time, you know, because Malthus wrote in 1798 or so, but Marx in the 1860s, he's seen full industrialization take place. He can no longer agree with Malthus, to perceive the population as if it is strictly determined by biological factors only. Marx wants to say the life of a population and the life of individuals and the life of workers is fundamentally determined also. uh, In addition to biological factors like genetics, uh, it's This life of the population is also determined and dictated by the movement of capital. So what Marx shows is that workers sell their labor power, for example, to uh, the capitalist, let's say to a factory, when the factory wants to hire many workers. They hire workers, they, they, they want production to expand, and they pay workers good wages and so on, so they bring workers in. But marx will show uno will show that there will come a limit to the period of prosperity and there will come a critical crisis moment and when there's a crisis moment the composition of capital let's say in a factory will have to change and they will fire workers to save money and so save costs and so on to try to to try to prevent further damage to the capitalist mode of production Um, and and by firing workers. So then now they create a whole res- reserve of unemployed workers. And now this, they were in production, but now they're kicked out, fired, thrown out of production. Now they're in the streets, outside production. What Marx showed is that this is how ingenious and maybe diabolical uh, this mode of production is, capitalist mode of production, because even though they cannot produce labor power as a commodity directly, because they cannot produce human beings directly, even though capital wants to consume their labor power as a commodity, what, even though, so this is a restriction on capital, however, can kind of compensate for this problem or this restriction by periodically firing workers and creating a pool or a reservoir of unemployed workers who basically have nothing but their labor power to sell as a commodity. And therefore, the capitalist can start to think, we will always have enough labor power around. Um, We need to actually produce unemployed workers to save this mode of production. Um, It's necessary uh, to maintain unemployment in this system to compensate for the fact that Labor power cannot be produced as a commodity directly. But what the capitalists can do directly is produce unemployed workers to compensate for this original lack of labor power as a commodity, um, you know, because at the beginning of the of every history of capitalism, we have, for example, this process, violent process led by the state, usually called expropriation of people's lands and so on. And that population created the conditions uh, for the capitalist mode of production. And the terminal point of expropriation for UNO would be, you know, after all these peasants are dispossessed, they have nothing but their labor power to sell, then they sell it to the capitalist. This is the end of the process of expropriation and the beginning of exploitation, and which begins the cycle all anew. But the law of populations and the production of what Marx called a relative surplus population, I call it the RSP, relative surplus population. This means that capital produces its own population that is totally superfluous and unnecessary for capital's own immediate consumption. So it produces a population that's a surplus in relation to capital. Therefore, it's a relative surplus population and it's produced periodically typically after a crisis then the capitalists will say oh we got a you know crisis we got to reorganize the the uh, technical uh, composition and the relations of production we got to change we got to fire a bunch of workers basically and at the same time try to get some better new efficient machinery but we also got to fire workers So the relative surplus population is basically unemployed workers who are unemployed strictly because they worked for capital. It's not because they are biologically unemployable. It's because capital deems them unemployable at that moment. And um, it's uh, one of Marx's, I think, most important theoretical discoveries was his law of population's that's very peculiar to the capitalist mode of production.
0: Uh, thank you so much for explaining that. Um, so we have been talking about the logic of capitalism as theorized by uh, Uno, as the um, what he calls the basic principles of political economy, as described by Marx in, in Das Kapital. But I think your historical work, your other book, authoritarian gamble, it's about a uh, conjunctural analysis of the crisis in the age of imperialism. Mm. So let's talk about this other book. How is Uno's theory of crisis uh, useful in understanding the, the struggle of Korean migrant workers in the interwar period? And why did you decide to title your book, Polaritarian Gamble?
1: Yeah. Well, maybe the first question, you know, how how was Uno's theory of crisis useful for the analysis, my analysis of Korean worker struggles? First of all, it was it's a book. Uno's book is a book of pure theory, so it has it says nothing about uh, Korean workers, says nothing about um, colonialism in Korea. It, it it almost says nothing even about japanese workers you know it's not it's a purely theoretical work but one thing i i noticed when i was doing the beginnings of my archival research was was that just on a demographic level i i was interested in studying you know the korean population in japan and that population because of Japanese colonialism in Korea, that po- migrant population really began only after, first during and then especially after World War I. So now this is pretty banal, uh, a banal fact, but, um, and most historians, for example, in the field of modern Japan studies or something like that, you know, they, if they try to periodize history, they'll often use like pre-world war 1 or post-war, you know, as if that describes history. So and I noticed that many other like uh, scholars of the Korean uh, struggles in Japan, they would often al- also use these categories like post-war, pre-war, interwar, and I also used interwar. But to say interwar period, I mean, it it just means a a period of history between two world wars. Well, I I realized after reading Uno's theory of crisis that we, we must get way, way more specific with the way we describe that period. And it was very clear then that when we look from the perspective of capitalist development in Japan, that during World War I, Japan, the Japanese national economy uh, developed very rapidly during the war and made a lot of money uh, for the, the, the you know, basically GDP and for the nation. Um, but after World War I, the economy contracts, industrial sectors contract, because basically during World War I, uh, Japanese industry was sending exporting commodities to the European countries while they were fighting and the Japanese were basically profiteering off of that war. But when the war in Europe came to an end, the market for Japanese exports came to an end. And then we see a huge contraction of Japanese industry. And after World War One, we basically enter a huge long period of economic depression. So Uno's theory of crisis tells us what happens theoretically in a period of depression. So, as I mentioned, you know, for example, mass unemployment happens in a, in a depression. And we can kind of start to diagnose history um, on a slightly more specific level with the help of something like the theory of crisis, because we can see um symptoms of capitalism in its uh, most vulnerable stage in depression. Everyone wants to get back to economic prosperity, uh, you know, to return to uh, good times. But it turns out it was a, you know, uh, almost a 20-year depression. And it's in within that depression that the colonial problem in Korea also was worsened. So we see colonial expropriation taking place after World War I and after uh, the Korean independence movement, especially of 1919. We see the southern provinces of Korea ravaged by Japanese finance capital. And uh, we see a huge expropriative uh, history in the two southernmost provinces and a lot of peasant immiseration. And so many Korean peasants looked for wage labor for the first time in Japan. But the tragedy of the colonized Korean migrant workers is that, you know, I call it uh, out of the frying pan into the fire. You know, they got out of the frying pan of colonial, agricultural, agrarian poverty and misery, hoping for some wage labor and cash uh, as workers in Japan, which is industrialized and, and the colonizer. But when they get to Japan after World War I, their fate is to fall into an, into an industrial depression where they could not really find a stable employment. And uh, we see uh, their kind of precarious life precisely because they struggled to sell their labor power which is their only thing they have, They there's no guarantee that they can sell it. And their illusions of selling it and making a lot of money are shattered, you know, because it's a depression, because there was a contraction in, in the mode of production. And so they have, their life is precarious uh, and Every time they sell their labor power, they can only do it in the day labor market because the factory system rejected Korean workers after World War I to give Japanese workers a privileged employment in the factory system. And colonized Korean workers were basically funneled institutionally into the day labor market as construction workers, if you were a man, and sometimes into the cotton industry if you were a woman. But especially for the men who constituted, you know, until 1934, so over over 70 or 80% of the Korean population in Japan, basically every day they had to sell their labor power without any uh, guarantees of employment, even for that one day. And uh, that was in the day labor market connected to the construction industry, which was one of the only industries that was actually expanding during the Industrial Depression. And we see uh, this kind of precarious labor coming into existence, occupied by colonial populations. And I wanted to call the book The Proletarian Gamble to highlight this kind of um, risky gamble, which is selling labor power. And I wanted to make this gamble the essence of how we think of the proletariat because i think in a lot of marxist discourse for example especially with the 19th century certainly we tend to think of the proletariat as a certain occupation you know like as if it's a only a factory worker and occupations that defines the proletariat but actually uno and marx reading them together made me think of the proletariat in a in a in some ways a wider more general way which is this experience of having only your labor power to sell as a commodity to try to live and survive, and yet there's no guarantee of the sale. This, to me, was why I wanted to uh, uh, title the book The Proletarian Gamble, and also because the Korean workers, their unions and their organizations that I read as a historian, they were always talking about how they wanted the Japanese uh, working class labor unions and so on to recognize Korean workers also as proletarian, even though they didn't work in the same place. But many of the Japanese um, labor organizations would sometimes call the Koreans not proletarian, but lumpen proletarian. You know, like sub proletarian. And the Koreans wanted to say, you know, I wish you wouldn't call us sub sub-proletarian because, you know, it's just another division between us and we we don't get organized together. So I wanted to theoretically try to say we need to think about the proletariat in a you know really update it to take into account the precarity, which means that we also, when we think of the proletariat, we got to think about expropriated colonized populations. And not just assume that the proletariat is an always already employed, you know, factory worker, say. No, we got to think about the proletariat as whoever sells labor power as a commodity and faces that horrible feeling of, you know, it's like you never know if if you're going to make a sale. It's like uh, praying to God. You never know if he's listening or something. So selling is praying. Selling labor power is a gamble. And this is how I I want us to think of the proletariat.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And um, one of the things that I really like about your work is that basically frames precarity as inherent to capitalism. It's not anything new to neoliberalism. And every time I hear precariat, Uh um, it was popular in Japan for a while as well. Uh, but it just uh-huh. like kind of drives me, drives me insane. saying, why not just we should just call them proletariat? You know, that's not. Mm. Um, I really support that uh, your definition of uh, proletariat as, yeah, including day workers and the so called free workers. Um, yeah, I and mean, then not to mention the, the existence of sort of like pre privileged strata of working class, like labor aristocracy. I mean, you don't really, mm. your work. It's not really about that, but it it does point to that as well.
1: Yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, um, those things. You know, I was really excited that I was able to find a lot of historical documentation on basically how the labor market came into existence, especially during World War One, and then after World War One, how the labor market uh, necessarily changed, and then how the state tried to basically control it you know to really control the national labor market and to just endless seemingly endlessly try to manipulate it uh, and to govern it because it became you know it had to be governed uh, to prevent revolution had to be governed to maintain uh, capitalist uh, reproduction it had to be maintained for so many reasons and um and how the labor market becomes segmented through a national lens, how these hierarchies between ethnicities become normalized through these institutions that are trying to regulate the labor market, even though they may say they're trying to help people with welfare. These same welfare organizations are also kind of institutional sites of power that start to create orders in the and hierarchies in the labor market. Um, and so you know we see uh, the colonial problem you know becoming part of that segmentation and um, you know it's not surprising probably for many people who know a little bit about the history of colonialism that usually the colonized populations get kind of kicked around the bottom or tossed around the bottom, you know, But what I wanted to also show was, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, micro politics that that happens in and around the labor market where we need to see all kinds of worker struggles, not just in the factory, not just at the the site of production, but, you know, throughout the social body, really.
0: Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, these institutions. This is a really important point that I want to come back to later. But um, for now, let's talk about what you said about the struggle not only taking place in the workplace, uh, which is another important aspect of uh, of this book. Uh, you discuss in the book that the struggle of Korean migrants as workers uh, was intertwined with the struggle as tenants. Uh, uh, can you describe what this struggle was like? And why is the housing question, as uh, Engels called it? importance mm-hmm. in understanding their struggle as workers
1: yeah thanks for this question because this was actually my favorite part of my doing the research for this book was all the research on the housing question and um you know if i were to do like a flow chart of korean worker struggles in japan it would be something like the anarchists uh, started it off in the early 1920s And then we start to see, but then they get assassinated and pretty much marginalized. And then we see Korean communist organization, labor unions um, emerging after 1925 and a lot of strikes, strike action, direct action at places of work, for example, construction sites, um, as well as uh, certain small factories and stuff. A lot of uh, labor, wildcat strikes and uh, stuff like that. But then the great crisis of 1929 and 1930, which began on Wall Street, of course, in November, um, it pretty much immediately impacted the Japanese capitalist system. And we have even more unemployment now. And what we start to see is Struggles around housing becoming very important, um, not just for Korean workers, but for Japanese workers as well, because if they're unemployed, uh, they have no wages coming in. Or perhaps if they're lucky to still be employed, their wages might be declining. And yet what we see is rent as another economic factor, um, not remaining the same, not going down, but if anything, going up. So we have an impossible situation for many workers who who have to have housing um, as a basic element in their means of subsistence and survival, housing, food, shelter, and so on. But they have more and more of less and less wages or no wages at all, but still have to pay for rent. And therefore, we start to see struggles of workers now as tenants basically demanding cheaper rent. So we would see a lot of these situations um, in Osaka, say, Japanese workers and the tenant unions um, demanding that landlords reduce the rent by 30%. Um, But the situation for Koreans was worse in the housing market because Japanese landlords generally did not rent to Koreans because. Uh, basically because of a kind of implicit racism. Um, and when Korea, so Koreans had a precarious life just trying to get housing in Japan. And there was so much refusal to rent to Korean tenants that the Koreans basically devised a plan where they would get someone who's Korean, but who's, who spoke fluent Japanese to basically pretend to be Japanese just to get a housing lease holding contract and uh, say someone is named Mr. Kim. Truly, he's actually Mr. Kim, but he pretends to be Mr. Takahashi. So the landlord who's Japanese says, "Okay, Mr. Takahashi, uh, I'll, I'll you know, you can rent this apartment. Then Takahashi, who's actually secretly Mr. Kim, goes home and then calls his friends and some extended family, and they share the apartment, and they split the rent. And then what happened in Japan was the landlord would inevitably find out that Takahashi was actually Mr. Kim, and that Mr. Kim has subletted the apartment to 20 other Korean people. Then the landlord would try to evict them, because And they would come up with all these arguments like it's fraud, fraudulent, or uh, uh, usually they would resort to the argument that it was fraud. And then they would evict the tenants. And then the Koreans are in the streets. So then the Koreans, um, I showed that basically no Korean in the 1920s and thirties could usually stayed in one place for more than six months. Usually they had to move every six months. And even when they were, cast out into the street as a homeless population in the 1920s and 30s the big metropolises in Japan they wanted to gentrify the cities and make suburbs and parks and stuff like that and um, they would just clear out the homeless population um, pretty much just like they did in Toronto in Bellwoods Park during the pandemic just clear them out get them out of the way don't let people see them you know and so the Korean struggle was you know, in terms of housing, such a big component to their everyday life as it is for every worker, you know, and I really wanted to have a chapter uh, and, and spend. I spent a lot of time researching the housing question um, because it was clear, you see, that after 1930, 31, uh, and 32 or so, it's as if the state in Japan had, had already done quite a significant job of in some ways containing the labor strikes the the labor uh, activities you know and the only place there therefore that the workers could politicize um, was actually in their domus in their domestic situation and same with the koreans so if you do a flow charts like From 25 to 1931, 32, you see this explosion of labor strikes, union strikes at the point of production, you know, in the factories, in the construction sites. But then the Great Depression kicks in. And already we have now a huge uh, addition of unemployed workers. And now the point of struggle comes back to really the place where the workers' life Uh, depends, which is their house and their housing and their shelter. Um, It's where the reproduction of the worker's life is. This is the center of that, you know. And so I think it showed that political struggles, you know, still rooted in the idea of the proletariat, but now we see the struggle uh, accentuated in their very everyday life around their living uh, spaces, around the economy, of their living spaces, which is in many ways also dictated by their employment and uh, their employment status, you know. So I think also to think of the proletariat, you know, as Engels showed so powerfully in the case of, of England, we really need to not just do a kind of sociological analysis of the workers' housing, which, you know, can be itself very important and illuminating, But to, I think by the time we get to the 1920s and 1930s, it becomes more politicized, more uh, directly uh, confrontational with capital, but now it's with a landlord typically, you know? And if it's not with the private landlord, it's then with the city and the city government. And so we see struggles, you know, especially by Koreans at the time, you know, they go from the factory to the construction site, to the uh, apartment house, then to the barracks, uh, homeless shelters in the streets. And then finally, they're, they're just fighting the police on the streets. Um, so I just thought it was important to document that the lived experience of Korean proletarians, um, it's not just about their working conditions, but it's just as much about their living everyday housing conditions um, that really need attention because so much energy has gone into those struggles. And yet many of the official histories of the working class um, tend to um, not really research so much of that stuff um, because it's not immediately tied to questions of work. But Especially now with the pandemic, uh, we should really wake up to how our house is now our new factory in some ways. You know, so it's, it's a scary problem insofar as it kind of the contradictions of the capitalist mode of production, which are so clear in places of production and employment like a factory, but now you know these contradictions are kind of cast into the house. You know, and it's like the workers therefore have to struggle amongst themselves, amongst their 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 families or their their partners, or um, as and to 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 see. Uh, you know, it's like it's as if the contradictions of capitalism are now projected right into the depths of the household.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate your attention on social reproduction. Um, as well as production Um, and you know very much for these uh, workers uh, it was a life and death question not just higher or lower wage Mm. Um, a lot of times they didn't even get paid right yeah right and they didn't in terms of their place of living a lot of times they didn't even a place to live like it wasn't higher or lower rent right you point out that Like their disputes with landlords is not really over payment of rent, but I guess just being Korean, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. other like racist stereotypes that landlords hurl at them, you know, like Mm -hmm. many people, like um, or like they scare the neighbor, bring down the property value, and whatever. Um, Balboa, right? They did, I think that you also point out that that overall strategy was to bring down the labor uh the value of their labor power
1: yeah yes 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 i mean basically the state was very aware of how much korean workers were paying for their rent and it's like this vicious cycle so the state Uh, Through their surveys and through the police investigations, they know how much Koreans are paying for their rent, and therefore they think, well, then the Koreans, they they only need to get paid this much in terms of wages, and it could be less than Japanese and everyone's happy, they think, you know, so, so the kind of the state's analysis of the housing as well as the labor conditions, they they were all, you know, on some level, um, integrated and synthesized. Almost in in a kind of national policy for Korean workers and tenants, um, and it it really shows that uh, these you know wages and rent and um, work and production and housing and social reproduction they're really they're they're two poles of, of the same spectrum of everyday experience of the worker so we uh, as researchers, you know, we really need to to document that as much as possible um, so that we can recognize uh, important places of struggle um, and to proliferate uh, points of of refusal and and resistance, I think, you know, because what I wanted to show in my book was that the highest point of Korean labor strikes, I would say would be around 1929, 1930. And then suddenly you just see this precipitous fall in labor-related strikes after 1930, 31. But then by 34, it's like a, another huge explosion, but now it's all in the housing world, you know? And for me, it was just a kind of sign of the how the Korean communities were so uh, driven into the most extreme situations, yet the struggle continues in one way or another, you know, they, they couldn't uh, remain simply broken, you know, they, they reorganized, um, they reshifted their their points of struggle. Um, and even though they weren't always coordinated with each other. I think one thing we can show as historians is that you know they could have been uh, coordinated perhaps better um, to have a kind of more a more unified struggle, but as it was, you know, I think this is again why we need to I think have a theory of crisis as part of our analysis because we know what now happens in a depression, you know, we know what happens um, in depressions, and we can. It can give a kind of a grid of intelligibility to what we're witnessing. So, you know, people freaking out in the housing market. It doesn't uh, one may think, well, why did they suddenly start busting out in the housing market in 1933, 34? Well, obviously, it's because of the Great Depression, you know, but we need to have that aspect. Um, And then we can show, you know, things like, well, during the Depression, the wages went down. And perversely, housing prices went up. So inevitably, the workers are going to have an impossible situation at home paying rent, you know. And this is clearly a a big problem. And there were many struggles. And we should recognize those struggles as a point of of politicization, of of becoming conscious of the class struggle. Um, The class struggle has many different dimensions is kind of what I started thinking about, you know. And uh we need to take those uh, those different elements uh, into consideration as much as we can.
0: Yes, I completely agree. And uh the theme of class struggle and power and resistance uh is really present throughout the book in different chapters. We're gonna come back to like the sort of organizational expression of uh organizing of the, the Korean workers, but for now, I want to shift our focus to the state and its role. And I want to, there are various uh, state apparatuses and institutions you talk about in the book, but I want to start with uh, So Waikai, a mm. Korean led community organization that ostensibly promoted harmony and mutual love, heavy in quotations there. Uh, between Japanese and Korean communities. Uh, But you show that this was not the case, not what they did, actually. Uh, But they acted as a sort of comprador organization that served the interest of capital. Uh, Can you tell us about the history of this organization and the role it played in the commodification of uh, Korean workers?
1: Yes, thank you for this question. This this also was one of the, I was, when I did the research on this book, I was most obsessed with this organization, the Kai, because the, the archival data was so little, and it just drove me crazy. But um, I really wanted to do research on this organization, which was formed in 1921, I think, um, After the Korean independence movement in Korea of 1919. And basically, after 1919, the Japanese state in Korea wanted to, quote unquote, conciliate Kaiju uh, with Koreans after the independence movement. Of course, the Japanese denied them independence, but they said, we will try to conciliate with you, Kaiju, and we will reduce the number of army personnel. Uh, occupying the country, but we are going to increase the police personnel. So the Soaikai was started by this kind of petty bourgeois ginseng peddler, uh, commercial entrepreneur, and they approached or were perhaps cherry-picked, it's not clear, by the main police uh, leader in the colonial government named Maruyama Tsurukichi, And what was their man, what was their idea? Their idea was our brothers and sisters, our Korean brothers and sisters in Japan are suffering uh, due to uh, unemployment and racism. They have housing insecurity. We need to build and construct a welfare organization to help our brothers and sisters uh, in Japan and we will call it the Soikai or the Mutual Love Association, to promote Japanese and Korean harmony. And um, they, these two Korean entrepreneurs worked with Maruyama, the police chief, and Maruyama basically secured funds from Mitsubishi, Mitsui, and the army, and gave these two guys a lot of money to set up um, this kind of extensive network of welfare, quote-unquote, welfare programs for Korean workers in Japan. And initially in Tokyo, but then eventually to, uh, I can't remember how many, over 20 different branches all across Japan, which in some ways was good. It did provide some welfare to, for example, homeless Koreans and it gave them a place to stay. Um, and they did promote you know, these kind of intercultural events and uh, to try to convince Japanese society that Korean people are okay, that they're not scary and, and so on. Um, on a cultural exchange kind of level, that's how they tried to uh, justify their existence. And the truth of their existence, as you said, and as I really tried to show, is that the public facade was it was a kind of harmony thing to promote Japanese-Korean harmony. But really, it was to basically organize Korean peasants who have been expropriated in Korea, who have landed in Japan with nowhere to go, and to harness this colonial migrant population of workers and channel them into the day labor market uh, to be used in the expanding construction industry. So, as I mentioned before, during the Great Depression, all the industries, of course, contracted, but the one industry that expanded was the public works or construction, or in Japanese, dobogi-jigyo. So, what the government wanted to do during the Depression was they were afraid that all the unemployed workers would you know, basically uh, uh, go into a revolutionary mode like the Bolsheviks. And so they created welfare programs and basically provided workers with minimal wages by giving them jobs in the uh, construction industry. And, uh, and this has been one of the methods for, me- for most capitalist countries in a depression uh, to try to help the population and to prevent social revolution, uh, basically try to bribe them minimally by giving them some cheap wages to work on the con- in construction. So build a highway or build a tunnel or build an embankment for the river and just give them something to do that we need to get done anyway and we see early welfare policies in Japan so the so kai was a kind of colonial welfare organization which did provide welfare but the the kind of dark underside what i call you know this this kind of obscene uh dark underside of it is is that it's actually involved in class warfare and it's involved in funneling cheap labor into you know into very important uh, industries like the construction industry and they have their own network and systems of of exploitation and that were often very kind of feudal in in character but which worked very nicely uh for the japanese construction industry and so this organization i mean it's i for me it was an important as you said comprador Kind of position. It was, it represents an organization that was conciliating with Japanese imperialism uh, and directly with the police in the most uh, opportunistic ways, politically and uh, economically opportunistic. And really, I think it was what I showed also was that because of their close police connection. Um, the Soaikai was constantly supported by the Japanese police and they basically, the Soaikai basically became a kind of, um, you know, preventive police, they called it, Yobo Keisatsu. Um, but this kind of, so it was welfare, but actually they were policing Korean workers, especially radical Korean workers and, and politicized revolutionary workers. And they were, um, repressing korean labor strikes uh, there were many strikes for example uh, in um at the yamaha uh, nihongaki instruments uh, factory in 1926 um, there was a huge labor strike and only two koreans were part of this strike uh, but the soaikai they heard that there were two koreans that were part of a japanese trade union strike at the Music Instruments Factory uh, in Hamamatsu. And uh, the Soikai would send their big guys, the goons, the thugs, they're kind of a Yakuza type, and to uh, just beat them up, you know, or create a fight to interrupt the workers' strike by fighting with them. And then when the fight breaks out, the soikai already has an arrangement for the police to come in and arrest the workers, you see, so then the strike is killed. So the Soaikai had um, there's a great historian of labor, labor named Oniwa Washunsky, who, who did the analysis, but basically he showed that you know the soaikai was used by the state, by the repressive state apparatus, the police, to break strikes, to, as it were, block the, the force of the workers against the capitalists by intervening and making the workers fight the soaikai instead of having the workers fight the, the bosses, you know. So they would try to break up the strike by as a, as a distracting force, make the workers tired, and then get them to get arrested by the police, you know. So they had this function um, very closely related to a policing function. And so the welfare discourse of these organizations, mutual love and stuff, it just was... Almost like an obscene joke to me, uh, like a really cruel joke, uh, because in fact, these welfare organizations were were uh, very violent uh, class warfare organizations that also facilitated the uh, exploitation and, and even super exploitation of colonized Korean workers in Japan.
0: Yeah, uh it's tied with policing, uh and the Japanese police is really interesting. And uh you talk about uh policification of the masses and massification of the police. Yeah. Uh, that sort of uh highlights the connection with community policing today, right? The so called yeah. a lot of police forces uh in North America uh use a very similar tactic to do you know, supposedly friendly relationship with the oppressed communities. And yeah. yeah and yeah, it's 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 not unique to Japan in, in any way. Um so yeah, that aspect was really interesting. And also um how it's presented as a private welfare organization, right? But it's indeed uh deeply connected with the state. Yes. And um yeah like it sort of reminds me of, uh, of Fuser's uh ideological state apparatuses, and in, for the last episode, I interviewed Max Ward about oh, yeah. about Tenko and peace preservation law. But um, yeah, sort of this is you know part of that ideological uh, front uh, on part of the, the class struggle from above,
1: right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. A lot of this stuff happens after nineteen twenty five which is when the peace preservation uh, law was enacted. And basically we just see different aspects of repression, you know, and the the idea of the Japanese police, maybe Max Ward also could speak probably more authoritatively than I, but you know, what I, what I do remember and what I know from my research is that the police system in Japan and in Korea changed really radically after uh, World War One, And basically why? Because, because the national economy was after the First World War in this contraction, and then we have unemployment, mass unemployment, we see crime going up in Japan. So the existing police structure was too small, basically, to, to handle all the crime uh, because they couldn't stop, you know, because so many workers were now impoverished and it led to crime. So Maruyama Tsurukichi, you know, was this guy. He's like, He said, we, we need to change the police system from a vertical system, which was like the kokumin, uh, kokumin keisatsu model, he called it, into this horizontal model of the police, which would employ welfare organizations as uh, as a kind of what they called preventive policing or community policing. They didn't call it community policing. They called it preventive policing, yobokeisatsu, but it also overlapped with um, the military's reserve system. So, you know, there, there's reserve soldiers. And one of the activities after World War One was that they also became kind of organized uh, in these kind of vigilante organizations, for example, so after the Great Kanto Earthquake of 1923, six thousand Koreans were were slaughtered and murdered by these um, vigilante organizations that were created as in relation to the military's reserve soldier system. Um, but these, around the same time, you know, these welfare organizations become part of the repressive state apparatus but we could also say it's not just the state it's not simply a state apparatus you see Um, as you said as that i talked about it was funded by private corporations like mitsubishi mitsui but it has this military angle so can we say it's only a state apparatus you know I would say it has also these elements of kind of institutional characteristics that, you know, are close to some of like Foucault's ideas of these dispositifs, you know, these kind of clinical, almost institutional sites, which are not simply uh, reducible to the state, but it's not simply, it's kind of between you know, between the logic of capital and between the logic of the state, there's a kind of in-between zone of these institutional networks of power and knowledge. So uh, I think uh, it is part of the state apparatus, the repressive and the ideological state apparatus, um, but it also has aspects of these kind of governmentality uh, agencies, you know, that on the surface, they say things, "Hey, we're just here to promote Japanese-Korean harmony," you know. Um, but in fact, they're they're, you know, kind of constantly moving between the world of capital and the state, and yet cannot be pinned down to either one exclusively. Either that's where I think an analysis of these kind of, you know, Foucauldian biopolitical apparatus dispositifs. Uh, combined with the analysis of these state apparatuses, I think it can it, it can illuminate many concrete problems. You know, by looking at that, yeah,
0: yeah, for sure. I, th- I guess it's kind of similar to like NGOs today, right? Like they, mm-hmm. you know, supposed to be mm-hmm. non governmental organization, but they yeah. either just end up reproducing the sort of you know imperialist uh, relations of domination or like. They actually like funded and supported by the state. Um mm-hmm. yeah. Speaking of which, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. Go, go for it.
1: Well, I just wanted to say, you know, I mean the thing that I really despised about the Sawai guy though is that for me it, it shows the real tragedy of, of the colonization of Korea, that it can lead to these organizations which you know work against the interests of the Korean population. You know, that it's, it's bad enough that the Korean workers were institutionally separated and divided from Japanese workers and prevented from having solidarity with Japanese workers against the forces, uh, the, against the ruling class and so on. Um, but no, it's not enough. It, they they got to divide Korean workers from each other, too, because after 1925, it became very clear to many Koreans that uh, the soaikai, even though they say that they're helping Korean people and Korean communities, in fact, they're 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 kind of, you know, uh, betraying them and, and exploiting them. So we see divisions, political now divisions uh, between the Korean community, in the Korean community. We see, in other words, a kind of class struggle within the Korean community It's not simply that Koreans are marginalized by the dominant Japanese population. It's also that we see class differences emerging within the Korean community um, as as a means to simultaneously separate Koreans from Japanese workers and to simultaneously exploit Korean workers for Japanese capital, you know, and so... And then they get recognition uh, by the state. For example, the president of the Kai, Pak Chung-gum, he was the first after he goes and literally shoots and, you know, represses hundreds of Korean uh, workers and in their strikes in 1920, uh, between 1925 and 1932, he uh, Right when his public figure becomes smeared with the blood that he's spilt by repressing his own Korean brothers and sisters, he uh, distances himself from the so as if he'd never been part of it. And he runs for uh, a parliamentary position as a representative in the Japanese diet and was elected in 1932 or 34, 32, as the first Korean colonized person in the Japanese empire to get a seat in Japanese parliament as if now he'd reached the promised land, you know, or something like that. And it shows then his position as the leader of the Soakai was used totally tokenistically by the Japanese state to appear as if they're conciliating uh, with the, the colonized Korean uh, colony. Um, in other words, we see a kind of multicultural uh, Pluralistic representation, you know, which actually conceals this really violent and ugly, um, bilious, um, fratricidal uh, class warfare, you know, taking place on the streets in everyday life, but which is totally repressed when you look at the parliamentary situation. So the Soaikai was able to utilize all these levels, and um, it's uh, quite... A illuminating way to look at the colonial problem and the question of, as you said, Comprador classes and Comprador complicities, uh, collaborators. Um, and it's not to just say who's a collaborator, who's a, who's complicit. We're all complicit, but we can see the, the goal of the analysis is to reveal these concrete sites of struggle um, and to also be able to and uh, know where certain ideologies start to appear like harmony you know it's like during the most bloody period of, of the colonial time we see you know the state promoting harmony um so we can smash those ideologies through historical analysis
0: yes pak <laughs> chumgun uh you know he's like this obama-like figure right like he's the first Mm. korean parliamentarian to be elected in the japanese empire Mm. you know there's this sort of success story or social mobility but in a way in a very colonial way right like it's you definitely need class analysis uh you caution against the sort of race reductionism uh, in your Mm -hmm. book as well uh, the importance of class analysis in and, and understanding the contradictions uh within uh, a nation or or ethnic community yeah. um yeah. you know the national question is very important mm. but we we have to see uh you know uh, the struggle for national liberation is simultaneously a class struggle right
1: mm. Mm. yeah i mean i think you know what i also wanted to show was you know, the, the Korean workers themselves, you know, we're trying so hard to um, create links of solidarity with Japanese workers across industrial sectors, but we're constantly running up against, you know, uh, obstacles. Um, at the same time, we see, you know, the Japanese state doing everything it, it can to divide and conquer, divide and conquer, to... Um, and it was like a big juggling act, you know, like the, the Japanese state when they are talking to Korea and to Koreans, they they want to they have to say, you know, we we, we don't want to say, uh, you know, forget about being Korean. We want you to be Korean and but recognize that Korea is part of the Japanese Empire, and um, we want to promote your your ethnic difference. We don't want to eliminate your ethnic difference we actually want to promote your ethnic difference but only up to a certain point but if you start to talk about national liberation we're going to repress you you know and similarly the workers you know they 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 don't they want to they the the japanese state would in, even encourage a certain national identification your koreanness your korean difference but only up to a certain point if it start if it start to overlap with the worker struggles and uh for for the working class or for the liberation of the proletariat they're going to get smashed down you know so this was the game you know of the 1920s and 30s between labor and capital and the state this uh, incredible juggling act and these opportunists like Pak Gum of the Soyikai you know opportunistically uh using This uh, messed up structure, not only for his own private benefit, but uh, an interest, but for the interests of the Japanese state, ultimately, Um, for me, it was a real um, good example of how in the stage of imperialism, these kind of politics around the national question, yes, around what we could even call a kind of multiculturalism was already you know, in the 1920s, already harnessed by the powers of capital and the state, you know, to justify its its imperialist and colonial expansion, to to actually uh, develop uh, a discourse of multicultural uh, of multiculturalism as the mode of existence of the empire, you know, and precisely as a way to uh, take the oxygen out of the discourse of class struggle. So I think this is what the Aikai was, it was a pawn in that game to try to take out all the oxygen of the discourse of class struggle and replace it with, you know, be a good Korean who lives in Japan or, you know, or as Pak Chumgum would say, the Aikai leader is like, he would say, I'm Japanese who was born in Korea, you know, (laughs) and just make everything about Korea and Japan, Korea and Japan, Korea and Japan, our cultural differences. And uh, we got to get along with each other and have harmony and, uh, you know, give us histories of the Korean nation and histories of the Japanese ethnic nation. And we must appreciate each other's cultural differences, all this stuff, this kind of liberal, humanist, multicultural discourse, um, was not the critique of imperialism or colonialism. It was in fact, the way colonialism and imperialism was articulated. You know, that's what we got to wrap our heads around um, and realize that that discourse was meant to take the oxygen out of, out of the the powerful discourse of class struggle, you know,
0: speaking of the class struggle though, like we talked about earlier or like it's really clearly present throughout in your book that, uh you know Korean workers and tenants really uh resisted and organized and fought back against not only the Japanese state but uh the soaikai groups like the soikai that was quite violent. It wasn't simply like a mm. carrot and stick it wasn't simply the carrot side of the thing right like it was also they worked yeah. as a sort of paramilitary kind of formation to terrorize people that's right and they also engage in sort of human trafficking operation uh, against korean women as well like they pressured woman workers into marrying men that they don't want to marry that's um right. so sort of inst- using the institution of family as a, a way to sort of reactionary way of uh, enforcing social reproduction right as sort of controlling right. women's bodies um so yeah, it was very in the bar- various different ways quite insidious for these the state apparatuses. Uh, but at the same time, it also applies to the the worker side of thing. They use various tactics and various uh, militant uh, protest tactics to to resist uh, this terror. Mm. One of the the revolutionary organizations that did this that you uh, talk about a lot in your book is uh, Rosso. Um, yeah. It's a revolutionary Korean uh, workers' organization. Uh, can you talk about their history and uh, what differentiates them from other organizations, as well as sort of contradictions that, uh, that led to
1: their dissolution? Well, um, this was a communist uh, worker uh, organization related to, you know, initially the Korean Communist Party that formed in Korea, but then was really formed in Japan by uniting, I think, 12 different uh, Korean-led labor unions in Japan. Um, and I believe that it was around uh, 1925. And so therefore, it it was a communist uh, worker labor union, all like a, a federation of labor unions um, And they had many close connections to the Japanese Communist Party's unions, uh, for example, Zenkyo. Um, And we see a lot of good uh, collaborative solidarity work between these two labor unions. Um, But what became really clear around 1927 and then 1929 was that it was increasingly difficult to create these lasting um, solidarities between the Korean and Japanese labor unions. One big reason was that the organized Japanese workers were mostly dominated by uh, factory trade union workers, whereas the Korean workers were all pretty much day labor workers. And so it it became difficult to kind of find shared interests between them and we see them kind of having these parallel lives in the 20s and early 30s, the Japanese communist labor unions and Rosso. Um, but Roso was really, I think, so important to, to give uh, Korean workers a kind of politicized class analysis of their situation. Um, in other words, not simply repeat the a discourse of national liberation only, but to speak of national liberation through uh, a discourse of class struggle. Uh, that's what I think distinguished Rosso from, for example, earlier Korean organizations, like anarchist organizations in the late 19, like 1919, 1920, 21. Um which promoted direct action and stuff like that. Um, but Rosso, I think, really tried to, you know, uh, carry out um, revolutionary activity uh, around the idea of, of workers as a kind of universal class, uh, as a proletariat. But the struggle for Rosso in Japan specifically was they constantly felt like even the Japanese labor communist labor unions could not really fully help them um they tried to help each other uh here and there but it was difficult to make it a lasting one and so around 1927 and between 1927 and 1932 we see rosso kind of getting frustrated and saying you know throwing their hands up in the air and saying look we feel all alone you know we feel like they're not hearing what our problems are. We feel like, so we got to do this on our own. So we start to see little splittings in the in 20 after 27 into the early 30s. And then Rosso, I think, you know, was trying to constantly argue that, you know, the problem of Korean workers is not only that they're paid less, they're often not paid at all, as you also mentioned. Uh, And they also face, you know, discrimination, sabetsu. And uh, Rosso, I think one of their best contributions is their analysis of, you know, sabetsu, discrimination and wages. Uh, They really provided good analysis and uh, as well as things like rent. They would show, uh, you know, how discrimination works in the housing market. As well as in the labor market, as well as in the factory system and and day labor systems, and they were one of the only organizations for workers that I think really tried to um, was trying to really organize very powerfully. But they they uh, they they had constant uh, problems with the police and so on. And by 30, 29 30, 31, it already starts to go into decline. And we start to see membership falling um, after 1930. But that's exactly when we start to see a kind of surge in Korean tenant uh, movements. And Rosso, I, I don't think, to my knowledge, I could be wrong, but I don't remember Rosso taking a very important role in, in the housing struggles. They were mostly, you know, for labor struggles. Um, and but it seems like after 1932, um, most Koreans in Japan kind of gave up on on Rosso and uh, worked on more grassroots levels in the tenant struggles around uh, resident rights, you know, ajuken and stuff like that. Um, and so it's it's uh, and by 1937, I wanted to mention you know one last point about the Soikai this. Comprador organization, you know, if you think about it, everything happens so quickly, you know, but great crisis in 1929, 1930, and then 1931, Japan invades Manchuria, 1932, they establish Manchukuo, and then five years later, they invade mainland China. And once Japan invades mainland China, Uh, We see the beginnings of, you know, really the beginnings of World War II or what they call the 15-year war in Japan. But, and that's when we start to see these organizations like the Soaikai, they themselves dissolve, but the state absorbs them on a higher institutional level uh, in the name of the Kyowakai, or the, uh, I guess, another harmony organization. And this is the organization that, Really structured the the wartime forced labor uh, policies, for example, forced labor of Korean Chinese uh, workers into the coal mines during World War II, and of course the establishment of the comfort women system of enforced prostitution of Chinese and Korean women in. In and around Japanese military garrisons, also related to this kind of uh, welfare organization, the Kyowakai, and so where there's now t- the the level of repression and the levels of coercion and the levels of brutality are are just so uh, exponentially uh, greater that we see you know you know in terms of labor organizing, it just it becomes so difficult uh, by the late 1930s. It's just a question of survival at that point, you know. But Roso had, I think it was it was the great fear of the Japanese state and government that Roso had clearly a lot of influence and um, power to organize Korean workers in Japan. And organizations like the soikai were, Partly created, you know, and, and further funded and developed by the Japanese state, I think, to try to um, fight unions like Roso, you know, so the, the, the diabolical aspects of the Japanese empire was to get Koreans to fight each other, you know, on that score. And that's where the great tragedy is um, for me. Um, yeah.
0: Um, yes indeed it is uh, quite tragic uh and it's also kind of uh, repeated forcibly uh today in various different places like how um you know uh the you mentioned like con- conciliation earlier right like it really reminds me about uh reconciliation uh, the discourse of reconciliation that is used against uh, indigenous peoples and mm-hmm. in Canada and I uh, mm-hmm. mentioned Obama earlier right like how some politicians of color or like community leaders they basically become co-opted by the imperialism mm-hmm. and sort of yeah yeah like it becomes a sort of uh, class contradictions within, uh, within community mm-hmm. anyways sort of moving closer to the end of the interview um, mm-hmm. this wasn't part of the original list but I'm wondering if you could tell us about you mentioned in the book that this is sort of prehistory of sort of militarized slavery you know like a kind of uh or deployment of korean labor during the war which is a more well-known aspect Mm -hmm. of this history like a lot of uh you hear a lot about Hashima and like Nagasaki right like the Gunkanjima Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. or I actually found out myself when I visited Nagasaki that um uh, there were a lot of Korean victims, uh, as well as other Chinese and Asian victims uh, of the A bomb. And uh, yeah. where the bomb fell was uh, near a prison where a lot of Korean inmates uh, were incarcerated there. Um, so, can you talk briefly about sort of past history? Like, you know, like I agree that the pre post war distinction is sort of artificial, but. Um, mm. How did uh, this continue? Like, what happened during and after the World War II to to these workers?
1: Yeah, that's. I mean, it's it's um, an interesting, you know, important question too. And I, I mean, in many ways, it's a different configuration after World War II because and after the Korean War um, of the early 1950s with the establishment of North Korea. And so after World War II, the Korean community in Japan, I think itself becomes further kind of, in some ways it comes together, in some ways it gets further fragmented. Now also with the additional connection with many Koreans who either go back to Korea, uh, North Korea included, um, and then many who remain in Japan as a kind of um, permanent residence in Japan. But I think and many of the pre-World War II practices of employing Koreans also continued in Japan. Um, and we still see a kind of post-colonial experience of Koreans in Japan that still have, you know, the, the, that still carry the legacy of the colonial period. And I, I still think that Japan and the Japanese government, and certainly the Liberal Democratic Party, the LDP, and these kinds of really established political organizations, they still pretty much refuse to um, truly uh, uh, take into account the colonial history and its legacies. Um, They still want to deny many aspects of the colonial period. Um, For example, the recent in the past couple of years, there's been many Korean uh, people, now old men and women, you know, who are in their 90s, you know, and who were forced to work in the coal mines in places like Nagasaki, you mentioned, um, and they never got paid. So they wanna get paid, understandably. They're still, they're 90 years old and they're still protesting the Japanese government to get paid. They're even protesting their own in South Korea, protesting South Korean government to get paid and trying to get the South Korean government to represent them uh, against uh, corporations like Mitsubishi. So they want money from Mitsubishi, uh, which was the main employer during the war of these coal miners. Uh, and forced work, forced labor workers. But the Japanese government, you know refuses to pay or, or, or the, the Japanese government refuses to make Mitsubishi pay. And even though the South Korean government took their the side of these old workers and said, you know the Japanese government should should find ways to pay them back, and, but the workers are saying we want to get this money from Mitsubishi. Mitsubishi, as a corporation, has to uh, be responsible. And the Japanese government says no. We we will not enforce that. And I, you know, I think this is something that I think is more something I've learned, um, which is you know we need to do more kind of corporate history um, to 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 make these. Uh, corporations uh, uh, accountable for many of these things. But I think in the case of Japan, you know, if they let, if the Japanese government, you know, says to Mitsubishi, hey, Mitsubishi, you got to pay all those Korean workers. Then the Korean, I think what the Japanese government is afraid of is that if Mitsubishi sets the precedent of paying, of course, Mitsubishi is a zaibatsu, you know, so it's a huge umbrella organization that has hundreds of smaller uh, companies who worked under it, you know. Um, If Mitsubishi is made to pay, then these other corporations may down the road be made to pay as well. And then we really, Japan would have, uh, you know, this kind of endless paying of of this debt, which they don't want to do. So I think that's one example that still plagues uh, international relations between Japan and say South Korea or North Korea or China. Um, where there's still a kind of disavowal or a denial or running away, you know, running away from the past as if it didn't happen because literally they don't want to pay. And there is this economic aspect to it that is incredibly political at the same time, which I find very interesting, but which is still one of these symptoms of colonialism in the post-colonial era, Um, which is why there's still very much contemporary problems, I I think.
0: Yes, uh, there are many, many injustices and trauma that still need to be accounted for. And, you know, reparation is a uh, a real question that needs to be uh, resolved. But ultimately, I think what you talk about in the book, how capitalism works, uh, how class struggle happens today in various different places is really it's still fought out uh, in a similar fashion by different people, right? Mm -hmm. And not to mention Japan is still very much uh, I would argue Japan is still an imperialist nation. And so as much as it is about past injustices, it Mm -hmm. it is very much present, right? It's still ongoing, if not by Koreans, by other um you know vietnamese mm. indonesian filipino uh chinese migrant workers and other you know migrant workers from other parts of the world uh you know mm. there's actually a very similar episode where uh vietnamese you know just you say you know technical interns are denied tenancy um mm. japanese landlords say they don't want to rent they don't want to rent to vietnamese yeah. because you know insert any racist comments right like it's it, mm-hmm. it's really it was korean back then but now it's vietnamese it's That's just the right. uh, mm-hmm. configuration of uh imperialist world economy changed but still yeah it is still the same i guess the, one of the major differences is that you know formally korean workers koreans were free to migrate right like there was theoretical freedom of movement uh, even though this wasn't really the case, there was various attempts to, to restrict the movement they're moving across mm-hmm. the border. That's right. Uh but I think it's the difference is that today deportations used as a as a tactic to discipline the workers. Um also like a lot of like uh uh incarceration, right, by the Yukon yeah. and immigration authorities. Uh, mm-hmm. so they use there's different tactics being used to Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, obviously, in the U.S. as well, right? Like, the, there's a mass deportation mm-hmm. of migrants from Central and South America uh, is mm-hmm. a big, you know, prison is a big business now for that reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It happens in Japan as well. You spoke at one of the panels that I uh, helped organize about mm-hmm. the struggle mm-hmm. a struggle against migrant detention in Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there are differences, but the struggle continues today.
1: Yes. Yeah, I mean. I mean, these struggles, I mean, they and the conditions, you know, of these of these struggles, they they have a history and they they these histories have lasted. That's the that's the problem, you know. And I think, you know, when we think about the history of capitalism and why and how it has to be overthrown, um, what we should realize, I think, is that the entire history of capitalism, you know, in every country, it may have some differences in terms of the expression of its development, but the logic of it is pretty much the same. And these uh, practices that emerge in countries like Japan, uh, when capitalism is when it when it first originated in Japan and developed in Japan, as well as in Korea through colonialism, you know the way it developed in the these singular conjunctures still uh, implanted, as it were, the logic of capital within these countries and these societies. And they've become practices that have just lasted the entire history of capitalism, you know, in Japan. So um, I think to think of the earlier transitions from feudalism to capitalism and, you know, the revolutions that, that were needed to make that happen, we should think about how to move forward and overthrow capitalism and create the conditions for the transition from capitalist society to a communist society but to do that we know now from doing this kind of historical analysis that many of these problems from from the colonial history for example need to still be you know overthrown uh, or their their legacies need to be overthrown Uh, institutional practices racist, institutionalized racist practices, for example, uh, to truly overcome those, we can't just simply somehow think we can eradicate racist practices in isolation from the mode of production that produced them, you know. So I think that's where I think we also, especially in our time now, um, we think of so many different struggles, you know, anti-Black racist struggles or feminist struggles and Um, But we also should see how they're intertwined and in many ways overdetermined by capital, you know, uh, by capital. So uh, that's, for me, one of the big lessons still for me.
0: Okay, I think that's a great place to end this interview. Uh, Thank you so much, Dr. Ken Kawashima, a.k.a. Sugar Brown.
1: (laughs) Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Mama, help me to stay inspired. Where well, the words in the tangle, man, it's hard to stay inspired. We only out of the frying pan and into the fire.